Welcome to the Meant for Good podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Holbrook, and I believe that each of us have been given gifts, dreams, skills, and ideas that we're meant to share with each other. My goal is to share stories that challenge and inspire you and I to connect with people around us because we are meant for good. Next best effort, as they say. Yes. (laughs) No one out there will have any idea the lengths that we have gone to to make this podcast, but we can tell you all that this is a labor of love. We love you guys and we want you to hear this information and... I'm really excited to introduce you guys to Shane Roberts. Those of you who haven't met him yet, you are in for a treat. Shane, thank you so much for being on the show and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, been looking forward to this for a while and we've made a few attempts at it and we are hoping and praying that this is the one that we've got all our technology figured out and that there won't be any interruptions. Yeah, more than a few at this point, technically. (laughs) Yes, all that to say, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and being willing to share your thoughts and ideas here. I have loved studying with you for the past couple of years. Thank you. Yeah, I've been learning a lot. It's been helping me improve my thinking and my lifestyle and my musicianship. So there are a lot of things that you've studied intensely and that you're able to help other people with. And I was curious, you know, what are some of your favorite subjects to study and to teach? Well, first, thank you for the feedback. I appreciate that a lot. I like to teach core principles of thought. It's probably my favorite thing. I like to deal with logic and theology and philosophy and certain mathematical foundations that help people to basically think better, think more clearly. I like to talk about biases, heuristics, and fallacies and generate as much in-depth study of whatever it is the person wants to look into. And I also like to help them find the questions that they need. Okay. So when you say the questions that they need, for what? Well, it depends on their life, but I've found that Over the last 15 or so years, there was a change in my student body and how they process life, reality, everything, actually. I mean, I can't find an area that it hasn't affected them. I would call it a ubiquitous situation in that they've lost abilities to think, certain choice states, option states of thought that the prior generation didn't have a problem with. And I think that's led to a lot of compounding issues within society. But for the student, what I look at is I I try to help them assess their own life in such a way that we can start to get to the questions that are holding them back. And what I mean by that is they don't really know the right questions to ask anymore. And I find that troubling, to say the least. It has existed with all generations to some degree, but it's really prevalent right now. So one of the things I look at is how to help the question be brought forth from interfacing with a student, analyzing what they're thinking, looking at the paradigms they live within, looking at their context. And then I try to bring them through encouraging them to think and teaching them how to think about the problem states to the point where they can arrive at their questions. 
people, they think the answers are where everything is at. But the real reality is if you can't find the right questions for yourself in your life, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And what I've found is it's increasing in frequency, the inability to assess the proper questions. Mm -hmm. So it is both. You have to do both things. You have to help people find their answers, but also the questions. And what I find is that people think they have the answers. And much of the time, they don't have the question or the answer. It's even contextually appropriate. What they do have is talking points, little systematic sound bites that they've been kind of leaning into for a long time. And they're not paying off. They're not working for them. So they end up coming to me through one pathway or another. And we start to dig into that. And through your questions to me today, I mean, I'll do my best to exegete all that and bring out what needs to be brought out about the process. But it's a big deal to find the right questions. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's difficult. Yeah, that made me think of several things. I mean, we just finished reading The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in a book club that we're doing together. Yeah, that's great. Right. <laughs> made me think about how, you know, they get this ultimate answer to the ultimate question and what's the meaning of life and the universe and everything. What's the point of it all? And they get this answer. It's the number 42. And they're just so disappointed. What do we do with this number? And this computer they're asking tells them, well, you have to understand the question. You don't even know what it is. Yeah. There we're dealing with the loss of context, right? Yeah. And you know that one of the major things that I teach my students is that modern humanity have lost the ability to properly contextualize themselves. I mean, we could do a series on that alone and the things that a person actually has to learn to be able to do that well. It's not a given that you're going to just be reared up in society and just have the innate ability to contextualize yourself properly. It's taught as if it doesn't exist. And what I mean by that is you're taught how to process and live your life in certain ways now through social engineering and all form of, we'll call it influence that comes up through preachers, teachers, school systems, friend networks, entertainment-based systems, media. So each of those pieces of information that you take in has a trajectory that it's both coming from and orienting toward. And that trajectory will inform you. And you'll inherently take in that information and process it. If you see it enough, you'll process it as truth, even if it's got nothing to do with truth. So one of the things about learning to contextualize yourself is if you don't know that there's a problem of contextualization, you will not be orienting toward that problem. Now, why that's such a huge factor is that when you don't orient toward the problem, any other system governed by other individuals, is then capable of taking that process over for you in such a way that you won't even understand it. And if you're not capable of organizing yourself, if you're not capable of organizing your environment in a way, and I mean mental organization, just like categorization and, you know, building the context, you're going to be highly disinclined to think this is real. The student may think, well, how is it that anybody wants to contextualize me for myself? And to that, I just say, look at history. This is what's been done with the human race for as long as we've been organizing in family groups. Your parents will contextualize you or you. So if we see it on that level, I suggest that it just outcrops from 
family to extended family and friends, from extended family and friends into uh, communities, from communities into local societies, from local societies into more proximal and distal societies. And you have to ask, well, what influences each of those stages? If you can get that far, you can begin to contextualize yourself because now you're looking at what is the influencing factor. And the influencers are critical. You have to know they're there. And when I say influencer, I don't mean positive or negative. It's just the role of that which influences. And as we know, you can't turn on any form of media without the attempt of influence. People have a point to what they're doing. They want that point to be understood. They want to see their position as being valuable. They want to have things presented to them, and they want to present things to others. And each side of that attempts to influence. So there's no point in speaking without intending to communicate. And if you're intending to communicate, then what is your intention in communication? Sometimes people will say to me when I start to get critical with them about their thinking, they'll say, well, I didn't mean anything about what I was saying. And I'm like, well, why were you speaking? Of course, they do mean something about what they're saying every time. Sometimes we say kind things to people that are really saying, leave us alone. Leave me alone. I like you enough. I want to keep this conversation at a certain level, and I'm going to distance myself by just putting this kind brush off out there. That's an attempt to influence. If you say, whoa, tell me more about that. That's interesting. You are attempting to bring forth further communication about some subject matter that you want to learn more about. Or you like the person. You may not care about the subject matter, but you say that in an attempt to bring forth deeper communication with that person. It's all manner of these arrangements that we do as human beings. And one of the things I do is I help my students to learn to focus in on what they're intending. How can you contextualize yourself if you don't know what your intentions are in communicating with your brothers and sisters of the human race? So that's a tiny little piece of it. It actually goes to every area because we're dealing with the fact that we are speaking together right now. And I'm going to bring forth things that I hope influence people to have a better life or to think more clearly, or the hope is that they'll hear maybe one thing that'll stay with them. That's the least of the hope. You know, the great hope is that they'll hear many things that stay with them and that help their lives. But I wouldn't be here if I didn't have a care and an intention to influence those that listen to me. Mm -hmm. Or if I didn't care for you and your podcast and want that to be something that I participated in for a number of reasons. So the first stage in understanding that there are influencers is just to understand that you're an influencer. You're always trying to influence. Yeah. You have a series of essays called The Frontisterium, which we're going to do a whole episode about. But near the end of the first 50 essays, you talk about the thought matrix and these different components of the thought matrix. And one I read about recently had to do with, I think it was a covert compliant thought style. And this component sought to create a style of thought that appeared compliant. And it made the person that you communicate this thought with, it, it gives them the impression of compliance. So they get the feeling that you're being compliant. But there's an agenda behind this style of thought. Always. It's subtle. Always there's an agenda. Yeah. yeah. And this is something that hadn't crossed my mind before studying with you. I would be compliant. I'd say yes to things, just, you know, go along to get along kind of thing. But I didn't realize that behind the scenes, I was 
trying to control the show. I want things to be a certain way. I don't want people to be upset with me. So I'm going to say yes so I can keep this other person from knowing that I actually don't want to do this. And then there's a dishonesty there. Yeah, absolutely. Those fall under the manipulation styles, styles of manipulation. So there's influence, which is saying, like what I did a moment ago, where I'm going to try to influence you in helping see what I call the real and what is actually going on with people in the world to the best of my ability to assess it and to bring it forth. And then there's a style of influence, which is manipulative, which is I'm not going to say any of that. I'm just going to try and put my fingers in your brain in a way that you don't feel. And I'm going to draw you to my position without ever letting you know that's happening to the best of my ability. So a lot of times as a teacher, when students first show up, they're not really aware of all of this at the conscious level. They've made deals with themselves over time at the subconscious level, and they're living out of the manipulative styles. So as I start to bring that out and, you know, not pointing any fingers, but bring it out and say, hey, look at this, you know, the, the subconscious aspect, it starts to go, whoa, this person's seeing these things. And as you were saying, you were doing some of that in the beginning. And you can feel your heart rate will pop up a little bit and you'll start to go, oh, am I about to get outed here? You know, because we're aware of this. I said subconscious. It's not unconscious. It's subconscious. Okay, so it's still a driver. It's a part of you. And you make these internal agreements with yourself that you're going to rather than endure the pain of really authentic, honest communication, which comes at a great risk especially today with cancel culture and wokeism and these types of things where you can make the least of an error or the least errant thing, I should say, and all of a sudden your life's over. You know, so of course that's scary. And that does engender people more toward manipulation. My point about it is that these are just styles. These are things that we look at and we try to learn to track their propagation. What I mean by tracking, like, can you locate this when people are doing it? And as the student learns that with me, they also learn that they're doing it. So when I said a minute ago, I said, you know, you were sort of hinting at this and bringing me into that direction of the conversation. What was your experience when I started teaching you about these thought styles and the forms of manipulation that people do to each other? How did you process that when you first heard that? Well, I was very surprised because I thought that my going along to get along was a kind thing. And I think that's partially because of misunderstanding of scripture on my part. I'm reading things like, do your best to get along with everyone, to be peaceable with each other. So I'm thinking that means that if I have a preference, I just forego it. I'm thinking that means that I don't speak up about what I actually desire and from that place, I had convinced myself that I was doing the kind thing. And so then when we started to dig into that more, and this kind of goes into something you mentioned earlier about fallacies and heuristics and, you know, biases, like we need to be able to determine when we're making those kinds of mistakes, when we are misequating things or misunderstanding something and then applying it improperly. Right. Lack of boundaries is what you're describing, actually. Yes. And and you're also describing a component that happens all the time, which is the right thing for 
everyone else just so happens to be the best thing for you. Right. Which is untrue, of course. Yeah, that is a very codependent thing. <laughs> yeah. So when we first started talking about all this, it turned my world upside down because I that's had... What it, that's what it's good for. <laughs> It'll do that. <laughs> well, I had lived this way for so long. You write about this as well in the Frontisterium, but I had lived this way for so long that I had become very passive in a lot of areas of my life and I didn't even consciously know what I wanted. And that's something that I've been having to really dig at and and take ownership of. And that's part of the issue too, is that if I live a compliant lifestyle like that, I essentially make everyone else responsible for my decisions. Well, you wanted yes. it. So that's why I did it. Instead of taking the ownership and saying, I wanted this, that's why I did it. Or I chose to sacrifice this. That's why I did it. It allows right. me to blame other people for it. And yes, that, that lifestyle you're describing is ownership avoidant. So yeah, that made me very angry when you started to show me that because I liked being in that position where I could blame someone else. Yeah, know? I didn't notice you got angry. <laughs> <laughs> you're joking. <laughs> I, de definitely for your listeners, I am joking. You made it very, very clear you were very angry. In a very uh -huh. subtle way. <laughs> right? Yeah. Was I actually or, overt or, about being angry? Maybe at one point? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was both. <laughs> one of the things that happens when you start to be confronted with your behavior, if you're coming from that thought style, is you try to entrench more deeply in the behavior for a while. And as I'm working with my students, I'm continually pointing the finger at that concept. Oh, look at this concept. Are you seeing that within yourself right now? And then rage. And of course, that's the response that you don't want to have to a truth being pointed out to you. This gets to a huge problem with them. I don't want to derail us too much. I want to stay on this track, but we'll probably end up wrapping this around into the modern church and the issues with Christianity and codependency and avoidance of ownership inside of Christianity. And that people try to use the Holy Spirit as a covering for their actions from the sense that it means that they don't have to change their actions. They just continually get forgiveness from them. And of course, that doesn't align with the word repentance at all, which means to turn 180 degrees, right, and walk the other direction away from those actions. Yep. So what we're really talking about is, can we, in trying to contextualize ourselves, can we learn about truth? And this truth would be, in particular, assessing different truths of how we think about the world, how we interact with the world, and just what that means both to oneself and outward to their family, friends, and environment. And nowadays, I mean, the influence can extend quite far using the internet and certain forms of media, just like your podcast. And there's a responsibility we have in my opinion, as Christians, to assess ourselves intensely. And I want this to be made exceedingly clear. I'm not talking about a works-based theology in any way, shape, or form. I'm talking about living under God's grace and being so grateful for that grace that we endeavor to treat the world the way that Jesus treated the world, to treat our Christian brothers and sisters the way that Jesus treated our Christian brothers and sisters. Amen. And, I, and I'm aware they weren't Christian at the time. I'm not trying to be like utterly 
pinpoint in the theology there. I'm saying to whom he was addressing and when he was present, how he treated those people, and then further how he has treated his creation. And that's what it means to be an image bearer, which is to bring forth what God has gifted humanity with, which is the imaging status, and to propagate that in your life to such an extent that people are treated so well that they don't want to not be around you. Unless they would rather not be around Jesus, which does happen. Yeah, that's powerful. Another thing that I've been learning in this process is that love speaks the truth. And that can be incredibly painful on both sides. It also sharpens and heals and protects and truth is just incredible and under an incredible amount of attack because it is so powerful and Jesus is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And if we're going to know him, we need to know the truth. And if we're going to image him, we need to know the truth and we need to speak it. And so I see that in a similar way that some people don't want to be around Jesus because that can be painful to hear the truth. Sometimes it's painful to be around each other because we might not want to look at the truth, but we're going to speak it to each other. And it's also one of the most loving things that we can do for each other, to speak the truth and to speak it in love, you know, out of love. Absolutely. Those are facts of Christianity you're espousing there. I mean, one way that I've seen... I'm going to put Christianity in quotes as I've seen people just be accepting of everything. And in that way, you kind of throw the truth out. Like if the Bible says this thing is wrong and then someone's doing it and you tell them, oh, that's okay. It doesn't matter. Jesus forgives you. Don't worry about it. That's not the truth. You know, the truth is he says, go and sin no more. He doesn't say to keep doing something that is harmful for you or that displeases God. I've seen a lot of Christians just be very accepting of things that are not good. Absolutely. You're speaking a fact there, and what is needed is bravery and uh, deeper theological understanding in some cases. It's a great, great problem in modern society. Yeah. And I think it's a misunderstanding of love because we think if we're so accepting that people want to be around us, because we say the things that make them feel good, that that's love. Mm -hmm. I used to think that. And that's why when you started speaking the truth to me, I didn't recognize that as love. I recognized that as criticism initially. And now I see, wow, that took bravery and love to be willing to speak the truth, knowing I would get offended and attack. Yeah, I can't love you if I am so concerned with my relationship with you that I will not speak the truth to you. That is cowardice. That is not love. And that is upside down in the modern church. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, it's a heavy point. The other thing is that truth is actually supposed to be experienced by us in a positive way. The reason why we don't have positive reactions to the truth is we suffer from innumerable inferiority complexes, from traumas and from a general penchant toward wanting our way above the way of God, which is sin. Sin is Bahamatera, and that is missing the mark. So if one humbles himself to good counsel, 
then the truth can be joyful, edifying, wonderful even. To pull from psychology a little bit, what's called the ego, and I don't mean this in the strictest sense of its use inside of psychology, but if we say that there's a negative aspect to the ego, and that aspect is the aspect that responds poorly to these types of things because it wants to be godlike, mm-hmm. right? And the aspect is you, okay? We're not talking about something that's not you. It is you. It's a part, a compartment, a component of you. That part is what causes the pain. You either want something that God's going to take away from you, and therefore you try to restructure. And restructuring is very important. We see this all the time. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that concept at length if you want to at some point. Mm -hmm. Or you find yourself wanting to do the right thing and then choosing not to. And in the moment when you choose not to, you're actually choosing for yourself. And that's a very painful thing to hear about because why are you doing that? You can say, well, I didn't want to do that. But in the moment, you chose it. So there's aspects you can see at play there. But when you take full ownership for your life and your choices, you will find out that at that moment, you did prefer it to the other options. And of course, that's the one that really crucifies us. And in my opinion, it should. In my opinion, we need to live our lives in that space, observing that and owning it to the point where we become more and more in the image of Christ over time. Because we don't get a single example of him ever making that type of error. It's nowhere to be found, not in scripture. So that's a critical component. So if we frame the ego in that way for our discussion, then it's what stands in the way. Mm-hmm. And what does it say? Well, it says, I am a God, and it may even acknowledge Yahweh or Jesus, but in the moment that it wants what it wants, it makes itself its own God. So one of the things that I recommend to my students that are struggling with things like this, which is very powerful, and I did myself, is whenever you want to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing that is in contradistinction to Christianity that would be termed a sin, I would tell myself in speaking to God, and what I mean by that is I'm talking to myself and I'm talking to God, and that those are different things. I don't want that to get confused, right? Yeah. But I say, I'm choosing this over you right now. Whatever this is, whatever it is, I'm choosing this over you, God, and that's how it is. And the moment I started doing that in my life, my sinning decreased exponentially because I couldn't keep doing it because I made the truth the thing that I would say to him. And the truth was so horrific that it just reformed me. Wow. I had to submit to that reform and I had to keep practicing saying that to him when it came about, you understand? Mm -hmm. And then I say that and, well, why is that impactful? Well, I'm thinking about him on the cross. I'm thinking about the fact that he died for not just the world's sins, but for mine. And he has loved me in ways that I I could never communicate to, to this audience. There's no way to get to it, but... He's loved them the same way. So they need only look inside themselves. But I'm saying to a being who who loves me that way and who has perfect honor and perfect justice 
in perfect righteousness and is perfectly holy and is deserving of my submission and worship, worshipfulness, and in that I worship him. I'm saying, oh, you know what? Nah. No, thanks, buddy. I'm taking this path. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm choosing it over you right now. Because that's what we do when we see and we choose those things over God. Yeah. Now, I've had people go, why in the world would I want to live like that? And he's already given me forgiveness. And it's like, well, you would want to live like that because you live like that anyway. All you're doing is not seeing it. What's the point? You're so cowardly. You can't admit what you're doing. And you're just going to like pull the holy blanket over you and say, you know, cover me completely without me actually dealing with my sin. Well, he didn't make us that way. We are capable of confronting ourselves. So I will teach my students to do this. And I can think of like two or three students out of 20 years that have practiced it. And it reformed them intensely. Now, when I say it reforms them, all I'm saying is that the truth of Christ is actually getting in there. It's, it's scriptural in a sense, what I'm talking about, right? I'm not reforming them. I'm pointing out a truth about confession and honesty, which scripture calls us to. And I'm saying, look at yourself, tell yourself the truth and tell him the truth. And you know what? If you do that bad thing and you repent, he'll hear you. But so much of what we get away with in the sense of like repeated sin is when we don't do these things. We won't talk to him about it. We bury it. We pretend like it's not there. It crushes our soul and our spirit and it hurts our family members. And, you know, we can talk about all types of outcropping series that, that come out of these things. But ultimately, if we do not accept the responsibility for our sin, then we're going to travel at the least a very, very slow path to reforming out of that particular sin. And I'll put it this way. He doesn't deserve that. And he wants the best for you. And he wants the best for your community. He wants the best for the Christian community. How does that happen if we don't reform from our behaviors? What we've got is just a bunch of bad behaviors and then repentance afterwards. And the harm keeps going throughout the church, throughout the family. He's calling us to better than that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying anything about if you're trapped in something that you've trapped yourself in, and it's very difficult to get out of. Use the Christian community. Pray to God. Do, do all the things that he's instructed you to do from Scripture. Do all of them. Use all of them. Use every resource. But if your heart refuses to change, there's not a word for me that'll ever help. Mm -hmm. You know, if it refuses. Now, if it's fighting... If it's struggling back and forth, then the, the words that I speak as a vessel may help. The words that you speak as a vessel may help. And he sends us. That's the thing. He loves to give us purpose. And that's part of our purpose is to be there for each other in non-condemning ways. Mm -hmm. And to call each other to righteousness. And if you can't look someone in the face and encourage them out of their sin or encourage them into better behavior, not just out of sin, but into higher behavior, a more effective and effectual thing. How can you say you love those people or that person? You're just thinking about your comfort. Yep. And when you're thinking about your comfort, guess who your God is? 
so that's that's like lesson number one own your life and that makes a huge difference to people but it takes years for most people to hear it mm-hmm. and like i say the one particular exercise where you say out loud to god what you're about to do and then you're placing that above him in that moment because that is exactly what you are doing right i'm not talking about you know making up some fictitious thing to burden yourself with we're only talking about pure truths here when you do that it's going to be the fastest pathway for you to see your own behavior and when you do that you should think about his love for you and not only going to the cross but in providing scripture for us and providing brothers and sisters for us some of us don't have family networks but we have and I mean blood family networks, but we have even better than that in the church. Some churches are doing great work. Some churches are doing horrible work. And there are ways to discern these things, and we should discern them. And we should not be so mealy-mouthed that we can't speak up and call people out of the darkness. Yeah. But you're not to stand above those people. You're to stand beside those people. And if you want to get it really to be truly correct, you're to stand underneath them and to lift them up, not to seek your own advantage ever. It's first will be last, last will be first. Remember in scripture when, which one of us is the greatest Lord? Yeah. And he says that if you want to be the greatest, you'll serve the others. And the first will be last and last will be first. What's that mean? If you're doing the holy roller thing where you want to be a force for God, but everything's about you, you know, you're saving souls so you get more tokens in heaven. Don't be surprised if that doesn't work out for you. He's not fooled by anything and he looks at the heart. So humility and supplication are essential. You have to have good boundaries because good boundaries are Christian. We're not to be laid down and run over. We're here to take ground, and it's not a war that is physical. It's like Paul says that we're not warring against flesh and blood. We're warring against principalities. Mm-hmm. And that means that when Jesus said we're the salt of the earth, well, salt brings savor to things. Like we're supposed to go out and draw people from the darkness. And you don't do that by harming them and entrenching them in their trauma. And at the same time, if people are choosing evil and they're coming against the church and they're coming against Christians to harm, we have a right to stand up to that. As a matter of fact, not only a right, but we're instructed to. So you'll find a lot of Christians that will maybe see certain YouTube channels that take a stand and they might disagree with that stand and they might investigate it and find out that the people of that particular YouTube channel were correct. And yet they follow through and do nothing about it. I've seen this many times. I'm speaking in general terms to get some points across, but I've seen this in very specific scenarios. And I would say, well, if you now know that they were right and that they're standing for something and that they're actually fighting for the truth, why not join them? And the answer is always one form or another. It's always loss. That person fears losing something. And yet we're supposed to take up a cross daily. So... The seeker-friendly movement has brought a lot of people into the Christian church that think that Jesus is here to deliver 
all their hopes and dreams exclusively. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is, yes, he does say he wants to want you to have the desires of your heart. And that does mean the desires of your heart that are not sin, mm-hmm. obviously. And you're going to get a lot more of those things when they're aligned with his will in the kingdom. Amen. Well, that should be obvious, but it's not anymore. But we run into another problem, and it's the problem of putting butts in seats instead of hearts in alignment. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got great subwoofers, but little content. And the time is coming when there are going to be a lot more house churches and this country is going to be a lot stronger because we're going to come under persecution as Christians at a deeper level. And it will separate those who are in Christianity to serve God from those who think that Jesus is here only to serve them. We see this in the deconstructionist movement right now. A lot of these people, that their faith was not founded very profoundly in core Christian doctrine. It was a lot of the feel-good components. Mm-hmm. And it left them in a position of great vulnerability. And the problem I have with that is they leave on some theological grounds that is very often easily disprovable. So once again, their shallowness and their lack of investing in Christianity and getting the deeper components once they were brought in through a a weaker pathway is manifesting in the reason that they're exiting. I've seen this a lot. So what do we do? I just lost a mentor and teacher, Dr. Michael Heiser, to pancreatic cancer recently. And he had the right idea. The idea is to stop protecting people from the Bible and to start teaching it the way it's written. It will divide the way that the division is supposed to happen. So we won't have converts that are only in the church to get what they want as much because the raw truth will be spoken to them. And it should be spoken out of love. Now, when love is framed as attack, then we're going to undergo persecution. If we allow love to be framed as attack without making an intellectual stand on that, without making a stand in society, not just inside the church, but outside on that point, then it will happen that much quicker. So what we're dealing with is a dumbing down of Christianity. It's not just a weakening of the doctrines. That's one part of it. In other words, not teaching them anymore, not teaching something that might be offensive. It's a dumbing down of the populace to the point that they can't really exegete Scripture well or learn the 200 words that they need to read the King James Bible, for instance. That is a random selection I just made. I'm not suggesting that that's the only scripture that should be read or anything like that, interpretation of scripture or translation. But you need just slightly over 200 old English words to really grasp what's going on there. And I'll say that to students sometimes, and it's just like 200 words. is like an impossible task. They can't get their head around it. And that scares me. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And there's a website that's already got it defined for you, and you can pull it up and just read the words alongside, but it's too much work. So there's been a coddling that has altered the world, actually, 
to the negative and we could talk about all that. But when we talk about the dumbing down and we talk about removing option states or creating scenarios where the actual answer is not present and therefore the person can't organically find what they would need, which would lead them to their proper questions, we get caught. And it's not just society because let's say a generation between 45 and 65, they know these things. Well, in 25 years, the 65 are likely gone, statistically speaking. The 45 are at 70 and they're less influential in most cases. And then look at what the engineers of society have been able to achieve through that process. So if everybody has an agenda, if everybody has a desire to influence and control to some degree, then I don't think it's a big deal to recognize that there are people that want to influence and control away from the Christian narrative. Of course that's happening. If you're a Christian and you're surprised by this, that's troubling to me. Like the entirety of Scripture deals with the war between good and evil. Well, you can't have an opposition if there's not an opposition. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's a tautology, obviously, but... Let me try it another way. What are Christians in opposition to? Well, it's many other thought systems, but we can say it clearly that way. Those that think this way, those that think that way, they're traditionally called pagan. And pagan means those over there, those people over there. They're not of the church. They're outside the church. Well, do they not want another version for themselves? So why is it just a quote-unquote conspiratorial thing to think that there might be an opposing force to Christianity? Yet I find people in the church thinking that that stuff just doesn't even exist. And part of the reason why is that they don't understand Scripture anymore. Even in the Reformed circles, a lot of times the Scripture is not being taught the way it used to be taught. So their foundations are altered. Well, if you want to take something over from inside, infiltrate over decades. Don't think you're going to do it in three years. You got to think about it, you know, 60 to 120 years and start changing doctrine, start changing words, start changing definitions, change concepts, do it a little at a time. And we've watched this happen now. We have the benefit of history to look back and see whether or not this has happened in the, the American church. And to a large degree, it certainly has. Well, that's influence. And I teach people that are not Christians and they know that I am a Christian and I don't attempt to manipulate them. I attempt to influence them. If they ask me a question, they're going to get a answer that comes from, I pray that comes from a Christian man and it'll be the best answer that I've got. And it'll be a studied answer. Mm -hmm. And that matters because I'm not attempting to manipulate these people. I'm attempting to influence them. And what I'm describing is what you were talking about as well, which is manipulation. And of course, manipulation exists. Of course it does. And we've all done it. Mm -hmm. So if one wants to contextualize themselves in the modern age, they have to start finding the questions to ask. And what I've been doing since you asked me that question is directing conversation in a way that makes a wide loop. I didn't try to make a tiny loop this time. I tried to make a wide loop and to tie it in to Christianity and to tie it into how influence propagates 
there are many, many, many ways we can do this, but that's the one I chose. And it brings us back to if you're a Christian, how can you contextualize yourself properly in the world if you don't have a Christian worldview? Now, the philosopher will say, well, Christianity is not true. And therefore, you can't possibly be living in the real if you're living in some sort of delusion regarding a belief system or something like that. That's probably another podcast. We can go through that. <laughs> but I took a particular stance this time in trying to help the people that I know are going to be listening to your podcast and to help in learning to observe oneself to get that delivery of, oh, what is sin and who should I be talking to about sin? Not only should we confess our sins one to another, but we should bring them before God before we were going to do them. And that deals with the concept also, what I call planned sin. It's like you want to be forgiven this week, but you've already got your next instance already planned out. Maybe you want to talk about that a little bit. You have some concepts where I know you've been studying and that stuff applies. What areas were you thinking of that I'm studying that would tie in with that? Well, it's any area where the individual wants to repent, does repent. But even at the moment that they're repenting, which brings into question the true repentance, they already know they're going to do that thing again. Hmm. So, you know, I'll work with students and as they're working through these problems, they'll tell me that. They'll say, I'm sure I'm going to do this again. I'm going to be right back here. And I'll usually understand what they're talking about. And I'll say, yeah, you probably will because you're not allowing, you know, X or Y influencing from Christ into your life. So you're blocking that. So yeah, you will keep doing that. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out because the reason that they're blocking is because they want that sin. But the reason they're repenting is not exclusively because they want to give over to evil exclusively. It's because they're feeling both things. Now, one of the things that people do is they go into shame cycles about this. And the shame cycle itself is a way of staying inside of the sin. It is not the way out of it. It's the way deeper into it. So you've looked at shame cycles and you've looked at habitual sin from a lot of different angles. And that's what I'm talking about. So habitual sin would be planned sin in most cases, not all cases. Okay. I think I understand. It's planned in that we blind ourselves to it so that we can continue to do it. So we've set ourselves up in a way so that um, through this dishonesty and through disowning our desires, not being honest about them. That's exactly right. We allow ourselves to keep sinning. And in that way, it's planned because we are aware that we're doing it and we're not allowing ourselves to see the truth of why we do it and that we actually want to do it. Am I on target here? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. And you're so describing you what happens, right? And that's an aspect of what happens. There are other things that can happen, but that's the general concept there. And if people can get that and just own that much of it, they're going to get healthier. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about saying to God, I'm going to choose this above you right now, I think so many of us blind ourselves to the point that we don't even know why we do the things that we do. We don't consciously think, I'm going to say this thing to this person right now so that I can set myself above them. That's right. You know, 
So to operate at that level of honesty, which is what we're called to, because Jesus does know what's going on in our hearts and he's telling us to be concerned with what's going on in our hearts. He says that if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. Hold every thought captive. Yeah. And we're supposed to bring these things into obedience to Christ. And exactly what you were saying earlier, how would he treat my brothers and sisters? How did he treat his brothers and sisters? Considering who he is and how he operates and what he wants, we need to do that down to the nth degree of the motivations of our hearts that we blind ourselves to. And so if we aren't owning those motivations and we're just blown about by our feelings and our whims and all of that is based on other people's actions and how those actions make us feel. We don't take ownership for our feelings or for our actions or for our motives. So much can go wrong from there. We can be controlled in the first place. Well, it exclusively goes wrong from there. I mean, it does. It exclusively goes wrong from there. How can you... Let me just point something, just a logical component of this out. How can you blind yourself to that which you already see? See, this exists in human beings because we will refuse. But to say you're blind to it in that sense... It's not a true description. It deals with some sort of metaphorical component from then on. Because the truth is, you know, so you're not blind. But you can practice being blind so much that you can forget over time. And that's what people want to do a lot of times. And and all those have done these things. So the point that I'm addressing is that you can't, be blind to that which you've already seen. You can only try to forget it. That makes sense. And in that state, that's where the shame spiral comes in. When we look at it and then we try to fix it on our own without going to God. It's like this thing that I've done is so horrible that I'm just going to keep beating myself up about it. I'm not worthy to be around anybody. Nobody loves me. It's just like all these lies that feed the shame spiral and keep us in our sin, causing harm, like you said. And then we can't even consider the people that we've harmed in that state because we're so focused on ourselves and we're so focused on beating ourselves up and kind of trying to atone for what we've done somehow when Jesus already died for that. And that's where you were talking about grace earlier. This is something that's, you know, it's a new concept to me. And I'm sorry about Michael Heiser too. He was a great thinker, great Christian thinker. I studied with him. I was in the first graduating class of his school of theology, but many people knew him personally far, far better. And the way that they speak about him, it aligns with everything that I saw from him. And yeah, he's going to get a well done, good and faithful servant, I believe. Yeah. Amen. I was just going to say, he had made this video about the gospel recently that our friend Palmer shared, and he talked about grace and what Jesus did on the cross and how what's really required is that we believe that Jesus is the son of God, as he says he is, that he is God, and that what he did on the cross is enough for our sin. We believe that. Amen to that. 
I don't need to go atone for it. I don't need to beat myself up about it. I need to accept that he's perfect and I'm not and that he's given me grace for when I make mistakes and when I sin and when I choose myself over others. And then when I see it, instead of spiraling, I need to acknowledge it and own it. Like you're saying, be honest about it and then give it to him and repent, turn to him and in the future, no, like, all right, I have a propensity to go this direction. I have a tendency to choose myself over others. And if I am willing to see that, I can also see why I want to do that. And then I can start to see things that lead up to that choice that I make. So That's then it's exactly taking right. the blinders off and then starting to make better decisions. So I don't put myself in this position next time. It's not a legalistic thing of like, I sin around this person, so I can't ever talk to them again. Although there are times when we need to separate ourselves from certain people so we can address our you know, our areas of weakness and addiction and things like that. Yeah, that's right. And grace, grace means unmerited favor. Yeah. Okay. So unmerited means we have done nothing, nothing to receive it. It's not works-based. It's unmerited. It's a gift. So why do Christians shame spiral? When they know this and there are answers and there is a series of answers and individuals will say they have unique histories. We can classify those histories as 80% like this type or 90% like that type or 20%. Okay. So we can generalize enough to get around things to, to talk about them. But the unique histories and in particular trauma histories will mm-hmm. influence shame spiraling. And certain aspects of trauma can actually inhibit people from grasping concepts that they believe. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard for people in the church to understand sometimes. But it has to do with the trauma filter in the brain. And it would be an aside to go into all the details about that. But we could do that at some point if you'd like. So some people can be blocked up. Other people, they don't want to get out of the sin, so they use the spiral to twist them back into it. So rather than accept unmerited favor, they're so transactional in the way that they've been raised or the way that they've chosen to live that they actually won't receive God's gift out of the stubbornness of their heart. Mm-hmm. And and they'll try to be transactionally perfect. Yep. I've taught a lot of these people. And I'm one of them. <laughs> sometimes it takes 10 years for them to yeah. grasp unmerited favor. But I've noticed that there's a component that always clicks in place right before that grasping happens. And it's that they submit to a deeper truth. They've been through so much through trying to be perfect that they realize they can be in that sense. And over the years, the decisions that they're driven to through that psychology, wreak havoc in their lives to such an extent that eventually they just are broken at the altar, so to speak. And then they'll accept grace at that point. They'll let the definition come in. And what happens after that is joy. I had a student that just got this last week Hmm. after probably eight and a half to nine years. And they were transformed, literally transformed. The happiness, I've never seen happiness like that in that person ever in that length of time that I worked with them. So why do we torture ourselves? Well, it's what 
we're calling in this discussion the negative aspect of ego. What is that thing? Well, it's it's self-God. It's, oh, yeah, you know, it, that part of a person will read and understand the scriptures. It'll understand the definition of grace. It'll do all these things, but they won't let it actualize. Rarely is it they can't actualize it. Mostly it's they will not let it actualize. And what I can tell you is that unmerited favor is the only way any of us are making it to heaven. Because it, it is no small thing to be opposed to the living God. There is not a small sin in that sense because what you are doing is you're differentiating yourself from that which is holy, that which is perfect. And if we don't let that be what that truly is philosophically and let that be understood, that's poverty. I mean, it brings about terror to me. In Christianity, our God is a God that is uncreated. This being did not generate the world because it was lonely or it needed something. This is a being that actualizes from perfection. And it chose, God chose, Christian God chose to bring all this about, knowing every piece of pain that would ever be felt. And that's why people hate God. A lot of people hate God for those reasons, I should say. But that's different from him being responsible for the pain. See, he brought about a system for us to grow and love each other in, in the flourish in. And we gacked it up. It's not his fault. So what does that mean? So we have a perfect holy being that I don't want to ascribe thoughts to God in the sense that we have them, but I'm just going to do the best I can with the language right now, that we'll say actualized creation. Scripture says for his own good pleasure. And some people get really offended at that, but the perfect being's own good pleasure is perfect. It's not an egoic pleasure. This being is capable of doing the entirety of creation doing it for its own good pleasure, which is necessitated of perfection in a way that shows everybody love, has an equal movement toward everyone. And those people make choices whether or not to accept or not. Mm -hmm. And we have botched this thing, not God. God does not need to create evil to bring about his glory. He may bring about his glory through leading evil with hooks in his mouth mm -hmm. because evil is set in opposition to him. But the key word in there is need. He does not need that. So yeah. what he did was he created this wonderful place for us. And we used whatever point of volition that we have. We can call that choice to some extent. And we chose ourselves over God. And that's part of what the knowledge of good and evil, the tree, you know, in the garden is about. I try to get over to my students that the tree, while the symbol of a tree is important, and I don't mean that it wasn't real, 
It could have been anything because you have this holy being, this perfect being who is using Eden as an example for us to then go out and bring the world into the shape that Eden was in. So he's giving us purpose. A lot of people don't realize that Eden and the earth are different things. Eden was on the earth, but it was a location on the earth. So God is there. And he says in the garden, as the story goes, all this is for you guys. Don't mess with that over there. Now, what that is, is a perfect being setting a boundary. So the moment mm -hmm. you transgress that boundary, you set yourself in opposition to that being. And that is no small thing. As a matter of fact, it is a horrific thing. And we need to understand that as Christians. We need to understand that to differentiate ourselves from what is holy is very serious. And yes, we can be forgiven. And yes, we have grace. And I suggest that we all take the advantage of that to the full extent that God has given it to us. But we do not abound in sin due to the grace, as we're instructed. But if you're too cowardly to see your sin, you're going to keep repeating it. So yes. consider his holiness and consider the fact that he's not to blame for the evil of the world. Think about that for, well, think about that as intensely as you can. Try to poke holes in it. Do whatever you've got to do with it. Because I think that if you get a good Christian teacher and you pay close attention to Scripture, you'll find that his ways are sharp. And they're far more intellectually rigorous and standardized and more powerful than you're going to learn about if you go to, say, the Discovery Channel and listen to what they have to say about Christians. The same channel that will put scientists on the television and talk about the scientific method and how you have to have direct contact and study the things that you're talking about will represent Christianity through non-Christian sources a lot of times. Yeah. So all of this matters and all of this is about influence, right? And I'm, I'm keeping that train of thought, the golden thread of influence through all these things. And hopefully we're talking about things that will hit Christians in their hearts and in their intellect as well. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't mess around. He's not a frivolous. Your being created is not an accident, no matter who you are no matter if your mom and dad said you were an accident. And all we have to do is just allow him in our hearts and minds the place that he has in reality. And then we'll come into agreement with him. And you'll have more peace there than anywhere else. And you'll be in contact with the real. That matters. That's powerful. And if you're worried about what people will think about you, he'll help you heal that up. But start with him. Don't start with them. He knows. He's had you from before time began. He's a subsistent being. There's no creation point for him. So to even talk about a point in time when he decided to create you, now he's always known you would be here doing this podcast. He always had a purpose for you. He has a purpose for everyone. Everyone has an imaging status. And it's whether or not we're doing a good job imaging him. 
and thank God he has grace for us. If we're not, we can repent and do better. And he loves to see that. To cycle in shame will turn us back into the sin and won't help. And a lot of times, you know, back to what we were talking about, we'll do that for egoic reasons so we can continue with the sin for transactional reasons. Many others too. But the concept of God being holy is something that we need to get back to as a society, at least as a Christian society, because talking about him like he's your little buddy, man, that is really something there. He says, if you keep my commandments, I'll call you a friend. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful statement to say to us broken creatures. But reverence is the only way to approach him. And I'm not speaking of something that separates you from him at the heart level. I'm saying that we need to recognize we are the created. He is the creator. Mm -hmm. We are the creation. And we need to get our context right before him. Oh, that's so good. I knew you were keeping that context (laughs) the whole time. Like you had that thread going with influence and... I love how you just buttoned that up. We need to have that context of his perfection and our imperfection as his creation, living in a fallen world and having these sins and traumas, whatever it is that we're dealing with, that we need to bring to him, that we need to bring to community, that we need to be honest about and heal. And there were so many points that you brought up that are just true and biblical Like when you're talking about these influencers, it made me think about how, you know, a man is meant to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And if he doesn't leave that context, he's not going to go start a family. And Right, it's cleave and leave, not cleave and stay, right? Yeah, (laughs) leave and cleave. So there's, there's evidence there for ownership of that man's life. He's meant to leave that context of being a child in this family and go live in the context of being the head of a household and being a man. So I love that just considering these different areas where we're influenced and that you ask questions and you help your students discover what's influencing me in in this area. And then is it God? Is it my family? Is it society? What's appropriate? And how does all of this line up with what God says? Because the Bible also says that we need to love God above these other things. We need to love him above our family. He needs to be first. And the language about that gets kind of harsh. You need to hate your family in comparison to him. If they're wanting you to do things that are contrary to what he says, you should hate that stuff. If it's sin, you should hate that. What he says and his truth should be at the highest level of priority in our lives. And so that's that's correct. Absolutely correct. It sounds so harsh. And especially if you're on good terms with your family, it sounds so harsh to say something like that. But what he says and the truth, his truth needs to be above all else in our minds and in our hearts. Right. If he is who he says he is, and I believe that he is, and he chose to bring us a message and his holiness is that important in any family member that is opposed to that. He knows what that will bring. 
both for that family member and for you, for instance. And he's not going to ask you to side with blood over perfection, over truth, over what he knows. He has the best interest of all at heart. And those mm-hmm. people should reform. They should reform. They shouldn't be in opposition to the living God. Yeah. And then things will work. So he does say that he, he didn't come to unite families. He came to cleave mother from daughter, father from son, and brother from brother. Now, yeah. of course, that sounds harsh in a certain way. But if you understand what he is, the cleaving is a protection. If a person makes a decision to go against him for their lifetime, and you do not, you can't serve two masters. Yeah. And he knows which is right. And he's not an egoist. He's not a capricious God. Even though he's accused of that, and he's accused of being a psychopath and everything else, but it's topics for another time, you know? Yeah. But think about if you can understand his holiness, even to just get your head around it a little bit and start thinking about it, it will explain those scriptures that hit us as being harsh. Mm-hmm. They're more like truths that couldn't really be any other way. If he is who he says he is, it must be that way. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much for listening. And please feel free to rate this podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. You can share it, leave a comment, or continue the conversation on Instagram, Facebook, or Substack. Just look us up at Mint for Good Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Linda Bilson. She provided financial support and overall encouragement for the engineering and production of today's interview. If you would like to contribute towards future episodes, you can email me, mintforgoodpodcast at gmail.com.